And we are back on KUCI's Justice or Just Us. Uh, when the University of Colorado recently announced it was firing the well-known academic and writer Ward Churchill, the decision came as no surprise to university professors employed at public institutions, nor did the decision by DePaul University to deny tenure to Norman Finkelstein. This especially after the publication of such books as David Horowitz's The Professors, The 101 Most Dangerous Academics in America. And while the terrorist attacks of 9-11 provided social conservatives with an opportunity to launch an attack of their own, that is, one directed squarely at the public university, disdain for public intellectuals dates back before the terrorist attacks of 2001. Here to talk about academic freedom at public and private institutions is John Wilson. John Wilson is the author of five books, including the forthcoming Patriotic Correctness, Academic Freedom and Its Enemies, and Barack Obama, This Improbable Quest. He's the founder for the Institute for College Freedom, which is at collegefreedom.org. And uh, John Wilson joins us here on KUCI. Good morning, John. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, where, are you, where am I calling you at? Chicago. Chicago. How is uh, the weather in Chicago right now? It is hot and humid. Yes. Well, uh, <laughs> it's, it's hot here. It's not nearly as humid, I'm sure, in Southern California as it is in, uh, in Chicago. But uh, uh, how is this for a transition? Things are certainly heating up on college universities <laughs> or college campuses, I should say. Uh, why don't we begin with, uh, with the obvious? Uh, your forthcoming book is titled Patriotic Correctness. What do you mean by patriotic correctness? Well, patriotic correctness is kind of the flip side of political correctness. Back in the 1990s, I wrote a book called The Myth of Political Correctness. And the idea of political correctness was the theory that the right had, that there was a vast left-wing conspiracy on college campuses that was suppressing the rights of conservatives. And, and there was a certain amount of truth to that, but there was a, a great deal more going on, including censorship of left-wing ideas. And what patriotic correctness refers to, particularly on college campuses, is what, in many ways, what happened after uh, the 9-11 attacks and what's happened on college campuses uh, and many times during uh, controversial eras in, in history, which is that you had a, a, a great deal of political pressure brought to bear, some of it internal of people trying to suppress political dissent, some of it external of uh, legislators and others, including David Horowitz and his Academic Bill of Rights uh, campaign, to try and uh, put pressure on colleges to suppress uh, left-wing thought. Now, certainly, uh, patriotic correctness doesn't just apply to uh, university professors. I mean, we know that in the wake of September 11th, there were uh, radio playlists with uh which which were, were actually quite the opposite they they weren't things that one should play they were things that one should not play and this could be anything from john lennon's imagine to uh maybe more biting songs from rage against the machine so um what is unique about patriotic correctness as it applies to academics well, it's not really unique. You had all those cases. You had Bill Maher being fired by ABC for saying that the terrorists were not cowardly. You know, things like these, these go on throughout our culture. What makes it different in academia is because we, we have much higher standards in, in academia, that there are standards of academic freedom. We expect freedom. Uh, you don't, unfortunately, expect that kind of freedom in the media or 
in a shopping mall where, where you'd be arrested if you handed out the Bill of Rights to people. Uh, you know, so it's, it's only really on, on college campuses that you have a kind of expectations of, a free, of freedom. And, and I regard uh, college campuses as being the kind of, you know, canaries in the coal mine, as being the important test of free expression throughout a society. And, yeah. and so when you see it being limited on college campuses, that's a symbol of a, of a far greater repression that's going on throughout the rest of the culture. Yeah, that analogy of a uh, canary in a coal mine, I think, is, is rather telling. I mean, you've got uh, voices, whether it's uh, Darwin and uh, Galileo, to, uh, you know, perhaps people like, like Ward Churchill or maybe just Howard Zinn's or Noam Chomsky's on, on the left. And it could also be, you know, figures on the right that uh, are supposed to be protected by the uh, the idea of tenure, where the idea of political or patriotic correctness flies in the face of academic freedom, and um, it's 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 rather chilling. I mean, one expects universities to be places where where new ideas are are sometimes sometimes disturbing. Um, is there a misunderstanding of the role of the university among the American public? Well, I think there is a, a, a misunderstanding, not only among the American public, but among some of the people on college campuses, some of the people running uh, college campuses. Is, and part of it has to do, I think, with the, with the kind of era of, uh, uh, with kind of a new age of capitalism on college campuses, the idea that college campuses are supposed to be job training grounds rather than places for the free expression of ideas. And one reflection of that uh, actually happened in, in uh, Irvine uh, back in 2003 at Irvine uh, Valley College when the uh, vice president of instruction, Dennis White, wrote a memo uh, to the faculty. And you know, I'll, read, I'll read the relevant part to you because it's su such a fascinating uh, little memo. He said, quote, it has come to my attention that several faculty members have been discussing the current war within the context of their classrooms. We need to be sure that faculty do not explore this activity within the content, context of their classrooms unless it can be demonstrated to the satisfaction of this office that such discussions are directly related to the approved instructional requirements and materials associated with those classes." Unquote. Mm. And, and so White in that memo is sort of reflecting this kind of the university is a capitalist environment where it's a job training framework, not the idea of a university as a place of free expression and political debate where it would be perfectly normal for faculty members to talk about the war and other controversial issues within the classroom. And that, and that I think, is a key to what's going on in, in, in the efforts to kind of suppress political dissent on, on college campuses. We're speaking with John Wilson. You could check out his blog at collegefreedom.blogspot.com. I want to get into some of the content of that blog as I, I find it uh, both entertaining and disturbing. But, um, you know, it's, it's very interesting because uh, I'm a professor of criminology, and uh, there is a lot of pressure for me to pretty much cater my courses to be mini police academies to instead of questioning whether police really can curtail crime or whether the causes of crime are so structurally based, you know, if, if, if all of the studies suggest that crime is linked to the economy or to racial tension 
or to employment or unemployment figures, or, or even if, if others believe that it's something uh, biological or genetic, what do we possibly expect police to be able to do about it? And so when I lead my courses asking these, these critical questions, uh, I often get criticized for not preparing students for a job in law enforcement. And so the idea that universities are somehow supposed to be vocational colleges, you know, that you see in between game shows in the morning and um, in between the soap operas is, uh, is a, a really disturbing trend. How is patriotic correctness different post 9-11 than pre 9-11? Well, I think some of it reflects the the kind of war on terror ideology uh, that 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 goes on. What one of the things that's different is some of the uh, particular restrictions on foreign scholars, and and that's been uh, uh, evident in in and the kind of blank check that's been given to the Bush administration uh, to limit dissenters from entering the country. The cases like. Uh, Tariq Ramadan, who was uh, hired to teach at the Peace Institute at University of Notre Dame, and the the government does not will not allow him into this country because he's a Muslim scholar who has been critical of U.S. policies, and and ostensibly when they were finally challenged on this, the reason they've given is is that supposedly uh, he's being excluded from coming to this country and teaching because. He gave a few hundred dollars to a Palestinian charity that's legal in France, and that at the time he gave the money was perfectly legal in America, but has since been designated as a as a terrorist support group by the United States. So uh, apparently, the U.S. the Bush administration theory is that uh, that Ramadan should have been psychic and predicted that the U.S. government would would put the group he was giving money to on a terrorist list after he had given them money. And that therefore that, that, that's the kind of uh, logic that's being used in these cases. And there are plenty of other cases of, of scholars who are uh, concerned about being able to come to this country for conferences who have been banned, such as Cuban scholars, and as well as the, the whole chilling effect that can come from that. Because if Tariq Ramadan can effectively be banned from this country and have his visa revoked, uh, for his kind of political statements, then any foreign scholar in the country could potentially have the same thing happen to them. And so I, I think that's one of the differences after 9-11 is there, there's a much greater focus on restricting foreign scholars. And, and that's just so ironic because it's, uh, you know, uh, foreign scholars or scholars who study international or foreign affairs, it seems, have been kind of waiting in the wings to have a reason or, or an opportunity to contribute to national and international debate. And then finally, an event like 9-11 and then the, the war in Afghanistan and the war in Iraq occur, and they're, they're largely excluded from contributing to uh, the national and international debate. And it's just it's such a tragic irony, never mind you know, international travel of scholars, uh, particularly into the United States. Um, all of this begs the question, what then, I mean, we, we might have already touched upon this when we talked about vocational training, but maybe that's what the, uh, the prescribed uh, role of the academic post 9-11 is, is to simply provide vocational training. 
what is the ideal role in your mind of the uh, public intellectual, either pre or post 9-11? What, what do you believe is the role of a university professor? Well, I don't, I don't believe there's one role. I think, first of all, you have a free university in which uh, professors undertake lots of roles. Uh, some of them talk about politics. Some of them don't. That, that there is that kind of, you know, some of them have very traditional approaches. Some of them have very experimental approaches. What you want is a free institution uh, and not something where you have one ideal of what a professor has to do. And, and, and part of that freedom is, requires giving people the freedom to make mistakes and the freedom to do stupid things, or in the case of Ward Churchill, to write stupid things on occasion and, and to make mistakes. And, and so that's an essential part of a free institution. Now, my personal model in lots of ways for, for professors is the idea of having someone who's engaged in political debate, who's in constantly encouraging uh, their students, no matter what they're teaching, to look beyond the kind of narrow confines of what the classroom topic is and, and thinking about the larger world and, and as well as the issue of civic engagement. But again, that, that's something that I think is up to individual professors to decide. What's important is to create an institution where, where the, there's the freedom uh, to pursue what, what is essential to that kind of engagement. And yet critics such as David Horowitz refer to that kind of behavior as indoctrination. Now, to, to play devil's advocate, are there professors in, in your mind after, you know, having uh, the, the College Freedom blog spot up, are there cases of blatant indoctrination on the part of professors, whether from the left or the right? Well, I think you can find cases, certainly there are cases of it. And, and, mean, and, and, and have, we, remember, you're dealing with higher education as an institution uh, with 17 million students, 1.2 million faculty on 4,500 colleges across the country. So you can find an example of almost anything happening somewhere on a college campus. And you have to be very careful not to use the isolated cases. Now, you know, I'm a little skeptical of the word indoctrination because... It, yeah, it, how do we it, define that? It's a very ill-defined term, and you've had people, you know, it, that it's kind of a no, you know it when you see it. What, what I would see is, I don't know, what I see is a kind of abuse of a professor's authority is not so much in the idea that they, as, as Horowitz would... Horowitz thinks it's indoctrination and it should be illegal in essence and punished if a professor puts political cartoons on their office door. If they talk about the war in Iraq at all at any point in their class, then their class is not about the war in Iraq. That kind of extraordinary repression is something we, we have to be really frightened of. There are some cases uh, where professors misuse their authority, you know, in some ways I would disagree with how a professor might be teaching a class that I would teach them differently. But where it gets to be a, a real abuse of authority is if, for example, uh, you say no conservatives are allowed in my class or no conservatives are allowed to speak in my class or, by, or liberals or whatever group, or if you punish someone for their views in grading. But that appears to be extraordinarily rare. One of the rare cases, actually, that I came across is where a conservative professor uh, who is uh, very conservative, gave a liberal student uh, a low grade, and then when the student complained about it to the dean, the professor uh, reevaluated the grade and gave him a lower grade to punish him for going to the dean. Now, that's an example of an extraordinarily rare kind of case. 
that's not, and, and obviously in that case it was actually a conservative professor, but that's not what David Horowitz and his crew are going after. They, because there are already uh, campus, campuses already have a policy to deal with those cases of unfair grading. What Horowitz wants to introduce is a way for uh, students to complain about their professor's political views and their political expressions, even if their views are perfectly free to be expressed. The, they want these students to be able to complain about them and have the administration shut down political dissent uh, within the classroom. And I think that's a particularly alarming uh, element that's, that's, that's really one of the more frightening things that's happened the last few years. Because traditionally, the attacks on left-wing academics have been, as with the case of, of Ward Churchill and Norman Finkelstein, based on their public work, based on their public expression. What Horowitz and other groups want to do is create a kind of monitoring of the college classroom and start punishing professors for what they say in their classes. And I think that's a really uh, important distinction. I mean, I, I spent uh, the weekend just thumbing through uh, David Horowitz's newest book. I, I suppose it's his newest book, Indoctrination You, and, and that's his term. And uh, it is very interesting that part, there seems to be that two-pronged attack. Part of what he goes after is just the very idea of a feminist studies department or a Chicano-Latina studies department, that just the very idea of a, a major that has one of its objectives, some form of, of activism, you know, to take the Marxist idea that the, the idea of scholarship isn't just to study the world, but to try to improve upon the world, and that that itself is a form of activism. Well, what's the point of, of studying history unless you're going to try to improve upon the past? Um, and yet there's, there's the one-prong attack where just the very idea of teaching feminism is a form of indoctrination, but then similarly we talk about specific, um, specific academics. Earlier you had talked about um, part of academic freedom is the right to make a mistake. Sometimes the mistakes aren't even directly linked to things that occur in the classroom or in scholarship. And uh, maybe this is a good time to talk about Ward Churchill. So most of the listeners on this program, I'm sure, are familiar with uh, the case of Ward Churchill. In fact, last week we played part of the speech, uh, or maybe it was two weeks ago, we played part of the speech where uh, Ward had made those uh, offensive comments. But for the listeners, can you give a little background on the case of Ward Churchill? Well, Ward Churchill's problems began basically uh, a couple of years ago. He was going to give a speech at Hamilton College, and so a conservative professor there researched what Churchill had done and came across this essay Churchill had written on 9-11 where he effectively uh, said that the that some of the people who worked in the World Trade Center were little Eichmanns and, and implied... Uh, seemingly saying that they deserve to be uh, killed in 9-11, which uh, naturally caused controversy because it's both abhorrent and stupid thing to write. But what then happened is there was an investigation of Ward Churchill's views, uh, Ward Churchill's research, uh, based on, because of all the outrage, and some faculty committees and other people at the University of Colorado determined that he had engaged in plagiarism and research misconduct. Basically what he had done is he had made assertions about historical research that the U.S. government had uh, uh, given Indian 
Indians uh, blankets with smallpox in order to commit genocide, in essence, kill them. Uh, uh, something to which he did not have a real proof for, and the footnotes to which he gave were to scholars who did not agree with him on that point. Uh, for that, it was called. He was uh, found guilty of research misconduct. He had also engaged in uh, ghost writing for some of his uh, uh, some of some people, uh, and and had then used the the essays he had ghost written in his own work, which they called plagiarism. Uh, now, I, you know, to me, there's no question that Ward Churchill engaged in what I would call misconduct. He engaged in poor scholarship. He engaged in things that should be condemned. The question is, should a tenured professor in a case that was clearly motivated by, by political uh, reasons, in a case that, you know, where he would never have really been investigated if he had not offended people with his public speech, uh, should that professor then be fired for uh, these kind of misconducts? this kind of misconduct. And, and, and in some ways, and my argument is that he should not be uh, fired, that, that you know, the, the correct punishment in this case is to condemn him for his uh, poor behavior and his mistakes and to criticize him, not to try and fire him when it, when it seems clear that, uh, that it is because of his political ideology that he, that he is ultimately going to lose his job. What kind of response have you gotten on your blog spot in your uh, defense? Not we shouldn't even call it a defense. I mean, you're not defending what Ward Churchill says. Few people, uh, few people are. Uh, I've taken the position that it was uh, a very crude way of trying to make uh, the point of the banality of evil, as as uh, Hannah Arendt had made with regard to Eichmann in Jerusalem. But, um, so m maybe I'll let you explain. You're not defending Ward Churchill, as you say, but you're suggesting that uh, he wouldn't have even been investigated were it not for a comment he made outside of the classroom. What kind of response have you received from taking the position that you take on Ward Churchill? Well, I, I think the large response from the conservative community has been sort of dismissive. That sort of, of course you just fire someone who does something like this. And, of course... Ward Churchill deserves to be fired. And, and frankly, the conservative movement is going far beyond Ward Churchill. They, they say things, not just David Horowitz, but others like, you know, well, we need to get rid of the whole field of ethnic studies, that the whole field is corrupt. And the fact that Ward Churchill was fired, is, was ever hired to begin with, is just proof of this. Uh, and, and so, I, I, I mean, quite frankly, in the whole realm of, of academic freedom issues, Ward Churchill is case is actually a little bit of a difficult case. Most of the cases of professors being fired are much easier cases where they're clearly being fired for their political views of this kind of patriotic correctness. I, I probably wouldn't even include uh, War Churchill's case in my book, uh, Patriotic Correctness, except for the fact that it's gotten so much attention. Because as, as a factual matter, there, there are some people who have very high standards who think or Churchill should be fired, even though other professors aren't being fired for, for that kind of what I would consider relatively minor misconduct. Uh, so to me, Ward Churchill, you know, the right is sort of taking him on for, as a kind of poster boy uh, because he is easy to attack. The, the bigger concern is the chilling effect and the, the scholars who are not in any way like Ward Churchill, who haven't 
uh, committed any kind of misconduct, like Norman Finkelstein, like numerous other cases that people haven't heard of. Those are the cases I'm much more concerned about, uh, uh, especially cases of adjunct professors. Can you give some examples? Well, there's one case that's very interesting here in Chicago uh, in uh, 2005 and 2006 at uh, Roosevelt University where an adjunct professor named Douglas Giles was uh, teaching a class on world religions. And one of the things that came up in the class is a student asked him uh, about the issue of Zionism as racism and, and, and what that meant. <clears throat> and even though Giles gave a perfectly moderate response to the question, uh, a student complained about it, and the head of his department uh, told him that he shouldn't be allowing that kind of discussion that might be disrupt, dis, disrespectful to Jews in class. And, and according to Giles, this uh, chair of his department uh, told him that the Palestinians don't have a side. They're animals. And, and shortly after this, after he had been told not to talk about these things, uh, he was not rehired uh, for his uh, courses. So, in essence, here you have someone fired uh, not for saying anything controversial, either in class or out of class, but merely for allowing a student to ask a perfectly legitimate question about a controversial issue that, uh, that of course, is quite relevant to a world religions class, uh, the whole Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And this is a, a kind of key example, and, and he, he never got his job back. There was a settlement uh, reached, but you know the the position of adjunct instructors is such that they they don't have even the the due process procedures that a Ward Churchill and a Norman Finkelstein get. However flawed those procedures will be, uh, these adjunct professors uh, can be fired on a whim, uh, and it's very hard to uh, get a lot of attention to to defend them. Yeah, it, I mean, we could have a whole separate conversation about uh, adjunct professors and how they, um, I mean, they're exploited in so many different ways. It's it's unfortunate, but then, of course, that their their jobs hang on a string, and so there's there's much more pressure on adjuncts to uh, to toe the uh, the line, if you will, than than uh, tenured professors. Uh, I want to have an opportunity for you to, to tell listeners uh, what they can do if they're concerned about uh, this uh, trend of, of patriotic correctness. And I'd be remiss if I didn't give you an opportunity to uh, talk about your work on uh, Barack Obama. But before we do that, you know, we've mentioned David Horowitz so many times, and I don't know that we've actually explained who he is and, and what his uh, his major... Uh, role in in this uh, patriotic correctness is so why don't just for the listeners you give a little bit of background on him and then we could discuss maybe what people could do if they disagree with Horowitz. Well, Horowitz was a a radical during the '60s who uh, were edited Ramparts and then he moved to the far right in the 1980s and and turned into a conservative activist, started up uh, the Center for the Study of Popular Culture, which was recently very modestly renamed the David Horowitz Freedom Center. And, and he, he runs the website frontpagemag.com, frontpagemag 
and, and really leads a conservative movement uh, to attack the left, uh, especially on college campuses. He, he also started up the group Students for Academic Freedom. And, and so he's launched this crusade uh, against left-wing academics uh, through his books and his website. And it, it, it's also a very lucrative uh, uh, endeavor. Uh, you know, he pays himself about uh, $350,000 a year. So he makes more than practically any professor he's criticizing, uh, all, for, all without you know, the impediments of having to do real work of teaching students. So, so he, he's really got a, a wonderful job. I'd love to have his job uh, uh, in, in terms of the structure of the conservative movement that funds these organizations and, 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 and really gets this message out in the right-wing media uh, so that people think that there's a vast crusade of left-wingers on campuses attacking conservative students, and they, they really don't see the real picture of what's happening. Now, in... Uh in Horowitz's, I don't want, maybe not defense, but uh, he is always very, very approachable in uh, whether through the internet or through the telephone. And uh, he gave you quite, uh, quite an extensive interview, which uh, I believe listeners can find on, uh, on the blog spot, or maybe it's a link on, on college freedom. Um, one of the things I found very interesting in that uh, exchange is that he begins by um, thanking you, if not congratulating you, on such a close read of his uh, his work, uh, his book, I guess, the, the the Most Dangerous Professors. But then halfway through the interview, when you catch him in some, what I consider, significant contradictions, he uh, criticizes you for not reading his work close enough. How did how was that conducted? Was that an email exchange or was yeah, that? Yeah, that, that was an email exchange. And how did you find? Um, do you have anything positive to say about him, or did did you find him pretty approachable? Or well, the only positive, I, I mean, I guess he he's somebody who responds to to his critics uh, often in in vigorous terms. But you know, I, I think the issue here is not that we need to try and ignore. The Horowitzes. In fact, I think we have a lot to learn by reading the Horowitzes and, and others who, who are out there. We have a lot to learn about what the university should, should reflect, because all too often I think it does reflect what Horowitz thinks it should be. That is, it should be non-controversial. It should be about job training. It should be his view that it should be just uh, a place where people go to get a degree. And, and I think it that Horowitz, is, Horowitz, by being so wrong, clarifies for us what the university really should be, that it should be a place of active debate, of political discussion, of dissent, and of challenges to, to the status quo. And, and so I think it's very valuable to, to, to read his stuff and to, to understand wh- where he is wrong, not just factually, but on a larger philosophical level, when he has this he has this latest slogan, take politics out of the classroom. And, and I think our, the response to that slogan is, we need to put more politics in the classroom. We need to put more dissent and political debate into the classroom and make the university education more about a civic education. And, and for those that are, are listening, that, uh, or for those professors that are listening, I mean, sometimes we do recoil at, at the student that is just, you know, if we're progressive that are very, very conservative, or if you're a conservative professor that's very, very progressive, but it's 
it's through that exchange, the question and answer, the Socratic method, that you really get the most vibrant uh, intellectual environment. And uh, I think it really is important, as you say, to have more politics in the classroom. Uh, plus, there's no such thing as no politics in the classroom. The absence of politics, I mean, the absence of any discussion of the war in Iraq at a university setting is itself uh, creating a very distinct political environment, one where, where discussion of important events is, uh, is not welcome, and that, that alone makes a political statement. Um, what can listeners do if they, uh, they want to get involved in defending uh, college freedom as defined by folks like you and me? Well, I, I think there are a lot of things they can do. They can go, go to my website and, and read my blog and read the various other blogs uh, I, I link to on my blog roll of uh, the deal with this kind of issue. So it's a matter of education. They can get involved with the American Association of University Professors, the AAUP, uh, which does a lot of things, and get active in pushing the AAUP to, to be involved in these things. They can look and see what's going on on their campus and look, look at uh, their campus uh, codes of conduct for professors or for students and see if there are things in there that restrict free debate. And, and they can try and model, try and create these kind of intellectual activity and, and political discussion and civic engagement within their classrooms and within their campuses. I, I think one of the biggest problems in college campuses is there's not enough debate of ideas. There's not enough discussion of politics. And, and I think the response to David Horowitz is not to ignore him and plow on with our academic debates, but to, but to oppose him and, and really create universities that thrive on, on civic engagement and political dissent. And one of uh, the most influential books, uh, for me at least, was, uh, is Nat Hentoff's Free Speech for Me But Not for Thee, which uh, I guess he wrote in the late 80s or early 90s, where he really challenged uh, university students, instead of trying to silence voices on campus that you disagree with, take advantage of all the uh, the opportunities to create forums and, and plenaries and debates. And so for those students, either of the left or of the right, who disagree with professors, uh, challenge them to a debate, set up, you know, use all the funds that are available and, and set up a debate and a discussion. And that's really what, what it should be about, not this this chilling effect where we've got lists of the most dangerous professors, whether on the left or on the right. Uh, John Wilson, I uh, told you I w it would be about a half hour, and I want to thank you for staying. I'd be remiss if I didn't give you an opportunity to explain Barack Obama, this improbable quest. So if you have a couple more minutes, we'd love to keep you. Sure. The, the, my Obama book, it, it's a very different kind of book. I, uh, I'm not used to writing uh, books about people I like. So that, I wrote a book back in the 90s about Newt Gingrich, and and so I prefer that kind of angle of, of just explaining why someone is wrong about something. But I, I, I wanted to write the book about Obama because I think too much of the political debate gets done through spin and, and through the kind of political and Washington establishment and the media establishment, that it's about who's raising money or who's, uh, who's getting off the right sound bites. And, and so I wanted to do a, a deeper analysis of sort of right-wing attacks on Obama, left-wing attacks, on Obama and, and, and try and explain some of his political ideas. Uh, and so that's the idea about the, the book uh, on Obama, which will be out on October. And I also have a website about that, ObamaPolitics.com. Now, are you a supporter of Obama? Yeah, I'm, I'm someone who, I, I 
I took a law class from him uh, back in the 90s at the University of Chicago. So I'm someone who knows him, and I'm, and I'm someone who would, I, I admire him as someone who's, uh, unlike the current administration, I think really brings a philosophical, intellectual approach to policy ideas, who's willing to listen, this is relevant to the earlier discussion, willing to listen to the other side, willing to hear all kinds of ideas, but is also committed and passionate to to. Sort of, to progressive values. Now, I have to ask because it's, I will be very honest that I do not understand the, uh, the Obama, I don't want to call it hype because I don't want to uh, suggest that people who support Obama don't genuinely support Obama, but I think a lot of the public doesn't really know what his positions are. And I think your maybe your goal of writing the book is to help clarify that. Is that a fair criticism, either of the media or a fair assessment that the general public doesn't quite understand his positions, but they, they like the excitement of someone young and uh, presents himself well and is somewhat of, an, of a Washington outsider? Is there any fairness in that? Well, I think there's a certain... I'm not sure how much people know about the positions of any of the candidates. Fair enough. I, I mean... There, there are a few of them, you know, where you, on specific issues, you can find out about Kucinich or Edwards or even Obama, and you can look on their websites. But in in general, it, it's not easy to know what Hillary Clinton or, or Fred Thompson really thinks about things. It, it certainly isn't clear in the media coverage of any of this. So I think a lot of people are based on, on sort of the tone and the approach. And I think that's more Obama's value as a, as a politician, is that he, he is someone who's a committed progressive, but he's someone who's quite willing to compromise, who pursues a bipartisan approach to getting progressive uh, legislation passed. And, and I think that's a valuable element. It's something that pe- really appeals to a lot of people who are kind of tired of a strictly partisan debate, who, who want to see the idea of, of someone who's a leader, who's willing to listen to the other side, who's willing to make compromises and bring people together. And, and I think that's where Obama is valuable and, and, where, and which is in some ways more important than what kind of policy paper he puts on a, out on a particular issue. Well, John Wilson, I would love to talk to you more about this as the book comes out in the fall. So can I get a, a, a tentative commitment for you to be back uh, sometime in September when the book comes out where we could have a more uh, critical and uh, friendly discussion about that work? Sure, I'd be happy to. Great. It's, uh, the book is uh, forthcoming. It is uh, Barack Obama, This Improbable Quest. You also want to check out Patriotic Correctness, Academic Freedom, and Its Enemies. And uh, please log on to collegefreedom.org and check out all the, the very valuable information on uh, college freedom. John Wilson, thanks so much for being with us this morning on KUCI. Great to talk with you. And uh, I'll talk to you soon. Take care. And stick around. What Would Arwen Do is coming up in just about four minutes, so uh, maybe six minutes. So uh, anyway, this is KUCI's Justice or Just Us, wishing you all peace. I'm going to leave off with some Burning Spear performing this Sunday at the Hollywood Bowl. Can you feel the excitement in me? Can you feel the excitement in Southern California? Burning Spear here on KUCI's Justice or Just Us. Peace, everyone.